We return this morning to our sermon series from the book of Genesis covering the life of Abraham, or as he is at this time in our study known, Abram. And we're picking up in chapter 14. And maybe, just maybe, you came to church this morning and you thought to yourself, boy, I really hope the pastor gets to read a bunch of weird names and places. That's what I want out of church this morning. Well, if that is the case, you are in luck today. That Genesis 14 introduces us to a bunch of kings of different little towns or clans. They're probably more like chieftains than kings. And as we listen to this chapter, you will probably be thinking to yourself, one, I'm glad I'm not reading it. And two, who are these people? And do any of them matter? And that's really the question we should be asking. As we hear all of these different names of people that mattered back then, who really matters in this chapter? And so if you will, uh, turn in your Bibles or in your bullets, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 14 today. Genesis 14, we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's 24 verses. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, the Umim in Shava Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. 
when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word has been translated into English because it sounds crazy enough in English. And we pray that You would give us understanding. Help me, O God, in spite of my weakness and my sin, to faithfully proclaim Your Word. And may Your Word go forth in the power of Your Spirit who has inspired Your Word, O God, and give us ears to hear and open our hearts and minds that Your Word might fall on us like rain on the ground and so bring life. God, work through Your Word as You have promised to do in answer to our prayers that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus and that we would have our faith strengthened in You today. In Jesus' name, Amen. There you go. I mean, clear as day, obviously, you know, exactly what's going on. Well, as we look at our passage today, because what really stands out here are the names. That's what just jumps off the page to us is all these crazy people. We are going to be thinking about our passage in terms of names. And what I want us to hear more than anything today is that the well-known names of the world are not as important to God as the unremarkable and ordinary names of of his people. That's what truly matters. And so we need to kind of understand the story, figure out who this Melchizedek guy is, but ultimately we need to end up looking at the Lord and the name that he calls himself by. So as we look at chapter 14, we need, we need to just stop and like, okay, what, what is happening here? Because for a lot of you, this is a passage that you read and you're like, yep, just never going to read that again. Like no interest. It's boring. It's irrelevant. And, And in a sense, you're right. It is kind of boring and irrelevant, 
But before we dismiss the battle, we need to at least understand it. That this isn't just four kings fighting five kings, that something's going on here. And in the broadest of terms, we can compare it to the American Revolution, which hopefully you're more familiar with than this battle. And so, Ketterleomer is playing the role of King George III of England. And the five rebellious kings, including Sodom and Gomorrah, are playing the role of the American colonies. Okay, that should help you here. And so, years earlier, Ketterleomer and his buddies from Mesopotamia had presumably defeated this group of cities near the southern portion of the Jordan River. And when you defeat someone, you want something. Typically, taxes. And so they likely enacted some kind of tax or tribute from these people. And these people who had been conquered paid those taxes for like 12 years. And then they started feeling a little rebellious. And so in the 13th year, they're like, yeah, we're not doing this anymore. No, thank you. I have no idea if they threw their tea into the harbor or any of that stuff, but we can pretend. And so the following year, the 14th year, Ketterleomer led an army with the goal of quelling this rebellion. And he essentially comes down and hits them from behind. He travels from the north down, conquering those other cities not associated with the five kings in verses 5 and 6. And then he comes back up to conquer all five of those rebellious kings. And that's pretty much what happens. He conquers them, takes Lot, goes up north, and eventually, as we'll see, Abram catches him. I can see that all of you are on the edge of your seats. You just are like, tell me more about Zuzim and Zeboim. I want a detailed description of the Valley of Sedim and the Bitumen Pits. I need to know. Or maybe you don't. And maybe to you, Genesis 14 is no different than opening a random page of the Lord of the Rings where the elves are singing a song and you're like, who are all these people in places? And maybe you don't know the difference between Arioch, king of Elisar, and is he any different from Aragorn, king of Gondor? I don't know. And you're just left wondering which of these weird names matter. And that's what you should be doing. That is the key question. Because it isn't until verse 12 that any of these names matter. The first 11 verses is background. It's just to give you an idea of what's going on. Until we read in verse 12, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother. Those are the names that are important. But why? Why are they important? Lot and Abram are not kings. And in the ancient world, far more people would have known who Ketterleomer was or who Bela, the king of Sodom, was or Bera or whatever his name is. They would know who those guys are. But who's Abram? Who's Lot? Why do they matter? Because those are the names of people who matter to the Lord. That God made promises to Abram, promises to bless those who bless him, and curse those who dishonor him. And since Lot is related to and loved by Abram, Lot also matters to the Lord. And we see that even though Abram was no warrior, he leads a group of soldiers to victory over this group of four kings. Remember, this group of four kings defeated everyone 
It was just town after town. And they defeated them and them and them and them. Took all these people captive. And then Abram and his 318 guys defeated him. This is not a result of his military brilliance or strength. It is a result of the Lord's power to keep his promises. And so today, thousands of years later, these well-known kings of the ancient world have largely been forgotten. But the name of Abraham is still known far and wide. Because Abram was important to the Lord. Because the Lord made promises to Abram and he believed those promises. Those whom the Lord blesses will be remembered by the Lord forever. And they will endure with him for eternity. But even though the Bible tells us that, we are tempted by the praise of the world. We can want to be considered important in the eyes of the world, forgetting that this world is passing away and those who are famous today will be footnotes tomorrow. We can even make this desire for importance seem godly, that we just want to be well-known for Jesus. If you watch the Super Bowl this evening, you will likely notice that there are two ads for Jesus, which may seem a bit weird, ads for Jesus, that it's part of this He Gets Us campaign where over $100 million have been spent to advertise Jesus in hopes of piquing people's interest in Jesus. Now, in one, on the one hand, I admire the willingness to take a big swing and hope people come to believe in Jesus. But big does not necessarily equal important. Neither does small equal important. What is important is what is blessed by the Lord. What is important is what God commands and what God promises to bless when we do it in faith. And so that means... That though we can value importance in so many other ways in the world, what God says is important are things like this. Teaching your children about Jesus. That's important. Praying for the salvation of a family member is important. Serving others in your community. That is important. Living a godly life in your school or in your workplace is important. Generously giving to the needy. That's important. And yes, those actions will not make headline news in our world today like winning a Grammy or winning the Super Bowl. And they may not seem to make a huge difference. But they are important because they are done in faith, trusting the promises of God. Because ultimately, what matters is whether or not we trust in the Lord whether or not we are His people, whether or not we, like Abram, have trusted God's promise to bless us by His grace. That is what is important. Abram is seeking that blessing instead of the fame of the world, as we will continue to see. But Abram does get blessed by someone in the world. He's blessed by this strange guy with a strange name, Melchizedek. And that is a name for us to remember. We can judge his importance by the fact that he shows up in the Bible again. He's referenced in Psalm 110, as we saw in our Old Testament reading, and he comes up a number of times in the book of Hebrews. But 
This is the only time he actually shows up. So this is his only appearance. He is referenced, but this is it. We get three verses in Genesis 14. He doesn't show up in 15, 16, 17. He's nowhere to be found anywhere else. And so why does the Bible make such a big deal out of this weird name that shows up for three verses when all these other guys don't get brought up again? Well, packed into these three verses, I want to see three reasons why we should remember Melchizedek. First, we should remember him because of his name and his titles. As we saw in our New Testament reading, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That Melchi is king, Zedek is righteousness in Hebrew. And so he's king of righteousness. That means he reigns with integrity and justice. I like that guy. That's good. All right. It also says he's the king of Salem. Salem is the same word as shalom, which means peace. And so he rules over a city of peace. Well, I'll take that too. And finally, it says Melchizedek is priest of God Most High, clearly referring to the Lord who has made promises to Abram. And so this guy has the name and titles of someone very, very important to the Lord. So that's the first reason we should remember him is he's got good names and titles. Second, we should remember him because of what he does. Now, he doesn't do a whole lot. But in verse 19, it says he blesses Abram. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high. In Hebrews 7, it said it's indisputable. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So if you if you end up reading through the rest of Genesis, you will see that fathers bless their sons. That Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. That Jacob blesses his 12 sons. That the superior, the greater, the wiser, the older, is blessing the younger. Well, this guy Melchizedek is blessing Abram. So instead of being a threat, instead of being a competitor, this guy is blessing Abram, pronouncing blessings upon him. That seems important. Okay. And then the third reason we should remember Melchizedek is how Abram responds to him. Abram may have found this guy strange, but Abram responds in gratitude. It says Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth or a tithe of everything. This gift of a tithe affirms that Melchizedek was not some phony. He was a genuine priest of the Lord. That Abram recognized that there's genuine faith here and I want to give to him. And so Abram is giving thanks to God for his victory by giving to this priest. Abram could have just burnt animals in sacrifice as he had done before, but he can also give thanks to God by giving to the servants of God like Melchizedek. And so later in the Bible, we see this practice of giving a tenth was done by the Jews under the law, giving a tenth to the priests of Levi. We also see it as a common practice of Christians today when we give the offering. We often talk about our tithes that we give unto the Lord as a sign that all we have belongs to Him. So you're like, okay, cool. So why is Melchizedek important again? Like, okay, he does this stuff. He's Melchizedek something. I can't really spell it. I'm not going to name my kid that. But what... What's the deal with this guy? Well, 
more than anything, I want us to see that it shows us that even Abram needed someone more important than him. As important as Abram was, and Abraham is, he needed someone to answer the problems he couldn't answer. The problems of sin and death and separation from God. And Melchizedek is a little picture that someone like that is out there. Someone like that is going to show up. That Melchizedek is ultimately a foreshadowing of Jesus. That's what Hebrews talks about. And even though Jesus was not from the right tribe to be a priest of Levi, he is still a priest, but a priest like this Melchizedek guy. That Melchizedek just shows up. We don't hear about his dad, his mom, nothing. We don't hear that he was born or died. He just seems eternally alive. Well, Jesus is eternally alive, not just because we didn't find room in the Bible to figure that part of the story out but because He rose again from the dead. Jesus also is a pretty good King of Righteousness, living with perfect integrity, upholding justice correctly. He rules over a greater city of peace, bringing peace between God and sinners and peace between all of us on earth. Jesus is the one who truly and fully earned the names and titles of Melchizedek. And He is one who blesses us as we trust in God with the salvation He has accomplished for us. And it is to Him we owe not just our tithe, but our whole lives as well. And so this Melchizedek is important because he's kind of like a squinting image at Jesus. You can see some of it there, and soon enough you'll see the clear picture in Christ. Well, this kind of faith that Abram shows in this chapter, and he shows it both with Melchizedek, but he also shows his faith in how he relates to the king of Sodom. Even though Abram was like, yes, I will take your blessing, Mr. Melchizedek, when king of Sodom over here is like, you can have this stuff that you won back for me, Abram says no. He says no. Think about the temptation Abram is facing here. He journeyed a hundred plus miles to go chase down Keter Laomer. He defeated four kings that nobody else could stop. He comes back with all of the people who had been taken captive, the livestock who had been stolen, and all the goods that had been plundered. He pursued Keter Laomer. But the shepherd comes back a war hero. He saved this whole region and he comes back and surely there was cheering. The adulation of the world awaited Abram. His name was being praised by the people. Thank you for bringing back everything that was mine. Thank you for saving and rescuing me. This was his moment to capitalize on his victory, to claim land and livestock and loot all for himself. And Abram's like, no thanks. I'm good. The king of Sodom was here, humble, because he had run away around the tar pits to get away from these bad guys. He's offering Abram all of this stuff. And Abram says no. And what's really nice is he tells us why. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. 
Abram wants to make sure God gets all the glory. All of it. As one commentator writes, Abram chooses to receive God's blessing as intangible as it may be, rather than be rewarded materially by the wicked. See, Abram knew there would be strings attached to this gift from the king of Sodom. He knew that this would form some kind of relationship between him and the king of this wicked city. And Abram was not looking to become rich and famous by these earthly means. He trusted the Lord would keep his promise to make his name great and bless him in God's way, in God's timing. And so Abram knew that even though he came back from battle with truckloads and camel loads of all this spoil, that God, the possessor of heaven and earth, had far greater spoils from which to bless him. Abram knew that God could provide for him everything he needed, and he didn't need to grasp onto these earthly riches when offered to him. Abram would much rather receive God's blessing and give back to God a tithe than he would accept the worldly wealth of wicked men. How can he do that? I mean, if I do something really cool and big and awesome and save a bunch of people, and they're like, here, take this. Take all of these cookies I baked for you. Yes. Like, here, here's your prize winnings for this. Here is this. Like, sure. Son. Like, that sounds wonderful. I'd love some rewards and prizes. How can Abram take such perspective? How can he turn down riches and trust in God? Because he had a right view of who God was. The Lord had made his name known to him. The Lord had shown himself faithful to keep his promises. See, God promised to Abram, I will bless those who bless you. Well, Abram took three allies with him on this battle. Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner. Hope I got that right. And they joined him. And at the end of the story, they are blessed. I will bless those who bless you. God also promised, him who dishonors you, I will curse. Keterleomer and his buddies took Lot and his family away. That is indirectly an attack on Abram. And so what did God do? I'm sending Abram after you. And I'm defeating those kings. Because they would dare touch my promised one. Abram knew God had kept his promises. And if God had already kept those promises, then Abram trusted the Lord would continue to keep the other promises. To bless him. To bless him by giving him offspring, by giving him land, by blessing him to be a blessing to others. And so by remembering who the Lord is, remembering the name, the reputation of the Lord, it helps strengthen our faith in him. We can just think about some of the names of the Lord. We remember that the Lord is our heavenly father. And as such, he will lovingly provide for us and wisely discipline us. If we know that's who God is, we will trust that. We remember the Lord is a merciful Savior. We know He forgives our sins and delivers us from the fear of death. If we know the Lord is our Almighty King, we will know that He will reign forever and that He will bless rebels who return to Him in repentance. We remember our Lord is a faithful God who makes promises and keeps promises. And so this chapter is filled with all sorts of strange names, but they should point us to the name that really matters in the name of the Lord. The Lord cares about His own people 
And not just that, the Lord knows us by name. The Lord knows His own people by name. In baptism, He is saying, I place my name on you. That you are with me. And so how do we know if we are the Lord's people? Well, Jesus says in John 10, the sheep hear His voice and He calls His own sheep by name and He leads them out. Do we hear the voice of Jesus in the Word of God? Do we hear the voice of the One who has promised salvation through His life, His death, and His resurrection? And do we follow our Shepherd's voice? Do we trust in Him? Looking to Him and His promises for what we need. If you do, then know the Lord knows your name. He has adopted you as His own son or daughter. And He says, you matter to me. You are precious to me. And my promises are for you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You that You give us weird battles and weird names in the Bible, but You give us very clear promises that You assure us of Your love towards us in Christ. And so God, I pray that You would help us to repent of our sin and look to You. Help us not to look to the fame and adulation and praise of the world, but help us to look to You, O oh God. We pray that You would help us to know that those promises You have made to us are sure to be kept. Help us to know who You are and what You have done for us, especially the salvation we have in Christ. And so bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.